Welcome to the Sovereign Grace Bible Church Podcast. Always reforming because we're always conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. And welcome back to the Sovereign Grace Bible Church Podcast. We are continuing our series in the Law of God. We're continuing in the book of Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 19, Paul is going to begin a discussion here in chapter 1 of how the knowledge of God is spread throughout the universe, and every man knows certain characteristics of God, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse, because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, and into birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own body between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We ought to point out in these verses, first of all, is that there is indeed a clear revelation of God. Notice these words. That which may be known of God is manifest. It is made open. They have seen it and they know it. God hath showed it unto them. God has shown something to all mankind. Now, if God was going to show something to someone, don't you think he'd be able to do that in quite a convincing way? Is God effectual in revealing what he wants to be made known? What he reveals to men. He makes known the invisible things of him from the creation of the world. I take that to mean from created order the physical universe, and the physical world, and that God not only reveals it to them, not only do they know it, not only is it manifested, but it is clearly seen. It's not difficult. You don't have to go sit in a cave and meditate for years. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes and deduce the invisible things of God from your own natural genius. But God has clearly shown his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That means God is effectual in it, and they know enough to be held accountable for what God has shown them. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 shows definitively how effectual God is revealing himself, because that when they knew God, so the whole world knows God, God was successful in manifesting the invisible things of himself, and so that they know God. And what does man do with that knowledge? They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts, foolish heart was darkened, and they became fools. And in this glorious understanding of who God is, they made it like unto a corruptible man, and to animals. And God gave them up, Instead of using that knowledge to come to God and to love God and to know God, they used it to drive God away and to sin more and more against God. 
They did not like to retain God in their knowledge, it says in verse 28. So they have God. It stays with them. Man is made inherently in the image of God, and man can't get away from that. This is evidently manifested in the idea that, as it has been pointed out by many, many others, that man is incurably religious. The most savage primitive tribe has a form of religion. They know they need to be worshipping some type of creator. They know they are a creation. They know there is a creator. And they have vain ways of uh, worshipping this God. Now, obviously, this manifestation of who God is is not exhaustive and is very limited. And it is deposited within the conscience and mind of a sinful creature. This is not just mere knowledge and what is man going to do with it, but rather there's a, a context, a pretext to understanding how this can happen. How do we have knowledge of a holy, good God with eternal power and divinity, and then we use that to worship a cow, worship the sun, worship the moon, worship a frog, worship a rat? The only way we can explain that is that man has a sinful inclination to reject what he already knows. Now notice what is revealed to man. What is revealed to man is something of God's own nature, his eternal power, that he is divine. We don't exactly know what divine means. We don't know what God means. We don't know exactly, I can't draw you a picture of divinity. We know it is other. It is distinct from us. It is separate from us. There is a wide gulf between creator and creation. The creator cannot be a creation, then he's not the creator. So likewise, there is this, this infinitude which God has, which man cannot completely comprehend. But man can comprehend what God has revealed. We can comprehend that he is God, that there is a God, that he is divine, and that we need to answer him, and we need to render unto him worship. We should be thankful for that knowledge of God which is revealed to us. But here is where the law really comes into context here. This is the beginning of the law. Our relationship and how we relate and how our actions relate to this divine being who has eternal power. God is interested in our actions and our actions will be judged in light of the nature of this God. We, This God is a glorious God, and we are expected to glorify this God. And there is something inherent within the nature of this divine being which is opposed to man not glorifying him, which is opposed to man doing certain actions. The actions that men do are in direct opposition to the very being of God, so that God cannot be reconciled to certain actions that men do. I mean, this is a really simplistic thought. There are some actions that men can do to you that you cannot be reconciled to, at least not in a sane way. For example, if I was to come poke you with a needle, your being would be opposed to my actions imposed upon you. If you have any type of conscience, you would be opposed to me poking other people and causing misery and pain to other people. If you love the truth, you would be opposed to me spreading known lies, lying on purpose. 
You can't love truth. You can't be good and then be indifferent to evil. And what we begin to see here is the very definition of good and evil. Good is acknowledging God and acting in accordance to that and glorifying him properly. Evil is failing to glorify God, rejecting the knowledge of God, and walking contrary to that knowledge. This is the very essence and foundation of the law. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is made known from heaven against all ungodliness. That is, contrary to God. Unrighteousness, which is contrary to God. Not godliness. Opposed to godliness. Against who God is. Against what God is. Against his very existence. Sin is defined as being not like God in his goodness and righteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Men hold the truth. They know the truth. And what do they do with the truth? They hold it in unrighteousness. So the law ultimately, radically, it has its root in the very being and nature of God. Therefore the law, as we're going to get to, we're laying the foundation. And the book of Romans does a wonderful job of line upon line, precept upon precept, building a case. And we're going to get to how this is the foundation of the law uh, in the next chapter. But what we see here that God has a nature, and this nature must be according to with what we know about God. God is unchangeable. He's immutable. He's all-powerful. And therefore, these actions must relate to God within the context of all of his attributes. There are certain actions that relate to God, which then of themselves become immutable. For example, there is no way that the actions of changing the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like, un, made like to corruptible man can be changed to a way which would be acceptable to God. The only way for that to happen, for this action not to be irrevocably, irrevocable, the only way for this action not to offend God is for God then to change. So here is something an action of man that God must judge eternally, and that this action can never have approbation. This action can never be approved of or tolerated of God without God changing his essential nature. So there's a finality in the judgment of these actions. There is a, a, a standard now being set, which not even God himself can change. God cannot make these lists that he's going to go over non-sinful, because they relate back to the very being of God. And the very essence of this is men rejecting the nature of God. So God can never be reconciled to these actions. He cannot be indifferent to it. He would have to change what he is, and that's impossible. These actions, shall I say, are set in stone. These actions then, and the judgment against them, are unchangeable. And nothing that God does can change that relationship. We haven't got into it yet in the book of Romans. We just had an earthquake. Sitting here recording this, and we had an earthquake. Here in Oklahoma, Hera, Oklahoma. It was a pretty good one. It was probably a three-something, depending how far away it was. We just had an earthquake in Hera, Oklahoma, just east of Oklahoma City. North of I-40, about 14 miles. Anyway, that was interesting. The actions of God in the future from this, 
must be in accordance with his immutable, changeable nature. So that when God comes to make a covenant, God can't make a covenant with anybody that doesn't take this into consideration. And all the covenants that God does in the future must acquiesce and submit that submit to his, the standards of his own nature. So God can't make a covenant where these actions are ever acceptable to him. These actions are not covenantal-based. So, so far, we haven't even read anything about any covenant. So that the condemnation of these sins are not covenantally-based. Therefore, the establishment of any covenant, nor the abrogation of any covenant, can change God's attitude towards certain actions. Because certain actions relate to the nature of man. Because certain actions relate directly to the nature of God. Look at this. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections, even for their women did change the natural use of that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, receiving in themselves the recompense of their heir which was meet. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So these actions here are not covenantally based that the offense here is in direct opposition to their knowledge of God, to the very being of God. God has eternal power and divinity, and these actions oppose that. Thus God gives man over to what he wants, so that they are then being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Look how verse 32 wraps this up. Who, knowing the judgment of God, they that commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So this applies to all of humanity, everybody who's made in the image of God. This applies to them. Everybody who has a conscience, as we're going to get into in the next chapter. This is everybody. Everybody knows the judgment of God against sin. And they still choose to sin. There's no exception for this. When you sin, it doesn't matter if you're in the jungles of Ecuador. Or if you are in... It doesn't matter if you're in the jungles of Ecuador. Or a palace in London. There's a God who's going to judge you for your actions. And you do not have a place at the table to determine what those actions are. You do not get to pick and choose how you relate to God. We do not have an option of how to relate to God. God is. We must relate to him as he is. I like to think of it uh, as a boat. A boat is a boat. And you must relate to a boat according to its nature. You can't drive a boat on land. You can't fly a boat. It has to be on water can't turn it over, can't knock holes in it, it'll sink. It has an, its nature imposes upon us certain actions. And we do not have a choice, whether we like it or not. A boat is a boat, we're stuck with it. Likewise, God is God. We cannot change him, he cannot be less than he is, and we cannot be more than we are. But exactly how to please God? How do we relate to God? So far, according to Romans chapter 1, we don't know. We don't know yet how to approach God. We don't know yet what pleases Him. 
We just know very vaguely that he ought to be pleased. He ought to be worshipped. But right now, we don't know how to worship God, do we? According to chapter 1, we don't know what does please him. How do we worship him? That is not revealed by nature. That is not written in the conscience of men. We have some idea. We have some idea of right and wrong. But it's written on a sinful conscience. Our minds are darkened. Our affections are twisted. So even that knowledge we have, it's unclear. And therefore we cannot rely on the conscience of the natural man to do that which pleases God. It has insufficient information. It cannot of itself please God. Therefore we must have more revelation from God on how to please Him. That knowledge which is written on our hearts must be clarified. And we cannot clarify it of ourselves. We must rely on the mercy of God, who is under no obligation to clarify anything, because we have been unfaithful in that which he has already given us. If you think about it, what was God's obligation to Adam after he sinned? The only obligation that God had to Adam after he sinned was to kill Adam. That's the only obligation God had toward Adam. Now in his mercy, he provided atonement and willingly took upon himself other obligations and other covenants, unknown to Adam at that time, hinted at, and vaguely given the promise to him. But Adam, of his own nature and his own actions and his own relationship to God, could not expect any form of mercy, including any additional revelation on how to come to God and worship him, or what actions are pleasing to him, or to clarify what his conscience was telling him about the divinity of God and his eternal power. But God in his mercy will give revelation to man. In his mercy he gave hints and tidbits of revelation to Adam and Eve, the first proto-evangel. We see here then, from Adam all the way to the end times when Christ comes back, a picture of salvation. And this picture mirrors the life of somebody who is converted. When somebody is converted, this is their beginning. They are born. They are born a babe. And they're a little child. A little child knows that there's a God. A little child knows that he's to be worshipped. It's written on their hearts and minds. It's essential to them because they are made in the image of God. Likewise, many people have grown up. Not in a Christian culture. They didn't grow up in church. And yet their conscience still pricked them when they did wrong. They still could identify, by some degree, right and wrong. Not perfectly, but they could to some degree. And this is where we are before we're converted. In a helpless estate. The man here of Romans chapter 1 has no hope of salvation. Because he cannot do anything. He cannot reach up to heaven and grab new revelation. He can't force God to reveal anything to him. So the person, before they're converted, is in this estate. Condemned by God. Judged by God. They have knowledge, and they're responsible for it. And they became vain in their imaginations. And they can't do anything to undo this condemnation. Even if it were possible for them to be perfect their entire life, by coincidence, just happen to please God forever and ever and ever at a certain point, they still have to answer for past sins. Because God has an unchanging nature. And that unchanging nature cannot be satisfied with the mere passage of time. Time does not change the nature of God to be reconciled to certain actions that oppose that nature. Time doesn't change God. God is outside of time. 
Therefore, all the hellfire of purgatory, if purgatory were forever, God would never change. Hell must be forever. His judgments must be unchanging, because God himself is unchanging. And those who are sons of Adam are born under this condemnation. They know the judgment of God, and they commit such things are worthy of death. And they have pleasure in them that commit other sins. They have pleasure in those that commit the same things they're doing. This is certainly a foreboding chapter. So far, it doesn't bode well for the sinful man, does it? Nor should it. Man should have no hope of themselves. All hope is vain that comes from yourself. You cannot seek help or salvation of yourself. You must seek it in another. As we will get to, that salvation is in Jesus Christ. Listen to what, how he began the chapter. I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken throughout the whole world. Listen to how Paul begins this chapter after his salutation. He says, I am a debtor. He says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in this gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now we've gone over for our time. Next week, we will begin Romans chapter 2. And we will see a new era in God's relation to men. How God will establish a covenant. And God will begin to deal with men covenantally. And that covenant will be a good and just and holy covenant. One that will reveal the nature of God more fully. And there will be some in that covenant and some not in that covenant. And how those two different types of people relate to each other and how both of them relate to the essential essence of God. With that, may God's blessing be upon you and may God bless His holy word. Amen.